0: Hi everyone, Happy New Year, it's February, and welcome back to the first Parliamentary of 2017.
1: Anne, how are you? Yay, I'm great, um, but I have always said that I hate people that say Happy New Year beyond the 2nd of uh, January. Let's,
0: let's re-record. Re- uh, welcome! <laughs> <laughs> happy February!
1: Happy Valentine's Day. Oh no, I don't like that either. Yeah, anyway, happy days.
0: Yeah. So how was your New Year? How was your festive period? Because it has been <laughs> quite a while since we've done this.
1: I know, we haven't done one this year, have no, we? No, first time. Oh, right. Okay, well, I'll skim through it. I had a great Christmas. Um, thank you very much. Uh, oh, I've got loads of really nice Christmas wishes. And thank you very much for giving me a job where I can actually switch off at one time of the year, and that is Christmas, because nobody contacts me, um, which is great, because you, you just go and do family stuff and watch TV and... Yeah things that other people don't find exciting but i do because i hardly ever get to do them but it was it was fantastic new year i went to a bonfire and bigger and that is so much better than falling about drunk um and i was driving so obviously i wasn't drinking anything at all but i had a fantastic time yeah did you have a good time
0: i just ate i just kept eating yeah yeah just ate. i'm not i wasn't going to say but eight. i know it's a bit i need to, ra- <laughs> I need to wrangle it I'm sitting here i feel like i'm always wiping butter off my face you know that way? <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, good one. Just just pretty much ate. That was me, and I, I feel like I'm still eating in February. Sort one out. <laughs> Anyway, and but since we've last spoke, there's been a massive change in world politics. It's been mm-hmm. all over social media. People are talking about it, and there's a big shift in how we're gonna how the world's gonna work in the next you yeah. know a few years. So I oh. want to ask why are you now gonna fly to London instead of getting the train.
1: Why am I going to fly to you made, London? You made a big
0: thing on social media about how <laughs> you were gonna you were sick of these trains and you're gonna fly. So are you gonna stick to that? or Are you gonna? You, Wear the sackcloth and ashes no, and, and no, go get no, the train. No.
1: So I did fly. And as soon as I flew, uh, I got on a flight that was delayed by about an hour and a half. And I decided I would get the train again. Then I got a train that was delayed by four hours. So I decided I would fly again. Something else happened, I decided I would get the sleeper, got on the sleeper and they said, oh, we have no trace of you, even though I had a ticket. And I thought, right, I'm just going to walk to London in the future. No, I have been mainly getting the train, the odd time I fly, um, but I'm mainly getting the train again. But I I'm, I love getting the train if I manage to get one of those deals where you can get first class for round about the same price as standard class, because you can get loads of work done and you've got room to move, you don't have to put your luggage on your knee, um, so yeah, big difference it makes.
0: Well, what I was kind of obviously darkly hinting at Aye, there what, was uh, what were you on about? Was, uh, it was it was Trump basically. I have to just say it. everyone's oh. talking about it. So, or I know it's about you This is not a UK issue necessarily, but just a thought. Like, what do you think about the travel ban that they're introducing? That's going to kind of tackle. I'm going to focus see. on the Middle East.
1: So you didn't really want me to talk no, at length I don't, I don't about. I
0: don't <laughs> care if you get the train or not. You're just you, you don't on. care if I walk. No, I don't care if you walk.
1: right Fine. What do I think about the travel ban? Oh well, I mean, how do I say it without swearing? I think it's well. I mean, apart, from, I mean, I share all the people that think it's outrageous. I think I do think it's outrageous and racist and all the rest of it. But I actually think it's really stupid. Um, as we've seen, you know, the courts are saying actually you can't do that. Um, and uh, I saw a wee thing, and I don't know if this is real or not. It was Trump holding up at some stage. Somebody agreed with him on this and um he held up a poster that he'd written and it said uh, unanimous decision 3-0 and decision was spelled uh, D E S C I S <laughs> I O S. It just made me laugh. You believe just, it, <laughs> well, I mean, not, not, I'm not laughing at people that have difficulty spelling or have, you know, uh, problems with that. It's just because he's the president, and you know, you think he would have checked before he held it up, and it got shared a million times.
0: And since you've had a, a run-in with Trump supporters in the past, have you had any <laughs> emails or, or, or contacts? Since
1: have I had any emails? Well, actually, I did a thing uh, for the BBC recently, um, and uh, I didn't. I don't like watching myself on TV, so I didn't see it. But I do know it was on the news every hour. And I went into the Whip's office, and the Whip staff were getting sick of the sight of me, apparently. God knows why. I mean, how how could you? But anyway, so this day I did this interview, and it was about that. Actually, it was about um, the time that I'd spoken in a debate about Trump, and I hadn't said it was, the debate was whether he should be allowed to come here. This is before he was president, and I hadn't said he should be banned from entering the UK. And I hadn't said anything of a nasty or personal nature because I just don't do that. But I had expressed my concerns about him. Uh, unfortunately, CNN highlighted my uh, something that I said on TV. So I got deluged with uh, oh, the vitriol was incredible. Yeah. So uh, the thing is, I um, saw one or two emails, uh, one or two um, tweets. Twitter was worse. Facebook, they were just rude. Emails ranted on at length um, and didn't make any sense, but Twitter was really nasty. Personal stuff, giving me advice on how I could look so much better than I currently do. Hairstyle advice, um, what I could do about my ugly face and things like that. So I only read a couple of them. Um, And you've got to take, somebody that's prepared to say that to you, you've got to take what they say with a pinch of salt. I only read a couple of them, but I realised they were becoming really nasty, so... um, Uh, Vary Love, who was volunteering for me at the time, she took over my Twitter account. She screenshotted them all because I want to have them in case I need them for anything. And then she deleted them all. And then when it died down, I just took my Twitter account back. So basically, the TV interview that I did was showing all these Trump supporters. I went into the screenshots. The journalist has seen them, anyone that watched that piece has seen them and I've had loads and loads of people contacting me saying that was terrible what they were saying to you. But I still don't know what they said because I haven't read them and I will not be reading them because why would you when people are being so vitriolic? So um, I don't know if I'm going to get to speak in the Trump debate that's coming up on the 20th of February. But if I do, I'm bracing myself for all that advice. <laughs> on uh, yeah, you've
0: got a friend on hand to take Twitter back off you. You're <laughs> yeah, don't like. let
1: me reply. I might reply in kind.
0: And um, I mean, we we're recording this on Friday, and just the other day mm. news came out. That the government, you know, talking about the, the the travel ban. Really, in that sense, that the UK government's going to accept far less, far fewer Syrian refugees than we initially mm. were going to um, accept. And you've been really active in championing the plight of refugees. So, I mean, I'm just thinking. We're going to accept fewer refugees. Just first of all, what kind of dangers the child refugees have and experience? So we, they're just—it's just a number at this point. But what does that mean for loads of kids who can't come to this well, country?
1: Well, the important thing to remember about this is this is unaccompanied children. So this is children um, who, and you know, there are children as young as nine and ten doing this, who have made the treacherous journey from Syria uh, or or other places to uh, to Europe. Um, and we were going to take our share of responsibility for them under the Dubs Amendment, uh, we were going to take 3,000, and now the government's decided we're just not going to bother our backsides. Now, these are children that are unaccompanied for a number of reasons. It may well be that on the... You've seen these boats and how they're overladen and people die. It may well be that they're left with their parents, but their parents died, so they end up in Europe... Um, on their own. Um, no mum, no dad, no older relatives. Um, and some of them do have relatives over here. That was, you know, that's uh, part of one scheme. That was the Dublin Agreement, which is slightly different to this. So this was about saying, you know, all these children uh, need somebody and they can't all be taken care of in France. We have to do our duty. And now we're not doing it. My, my real concern, I mean, they use the excuse that. The fact that we said we would take 3,000 encouraged some children to become unaccompanied and to make the journey by themselves. What a lot of rubbish. So it encouraged them to do it. Well, if they really believe that, and so their fear is that it puts them in danger because more of them will make that treacherous journey to Europe in the hope that they'll be one of the 3,000 if we're to believe that, that that's what the Tory government is really concerned about, if we're to believe that children become incentivised like that, and I don't, then the converse has to be true, that those children that have made their way to Europe might then be incentivised to make their way back to Syria. Because what we're saying is, we'll take children from the camps in Syria, but we're not taking them from Europe. So it doesn't make sense. And if what they're saying is correct, then those children are going to be desperate enough to fall for any line that any adult tells them and to start making the treacherous journey back. The fact is, these children have no choice. There are no decisions made. They have no choice. I mean, I this is not something that I heard about in Syria, but I heard uh, uh, there was documented evidence in the Yemen of um, uh, Daesh uh, taking a three-year-old child from his parents... Um, killing the child, cooking the child and eating the child to teach the parents a lesson now, if that's your child that might be facing that and let's face it, you know, in Syria there are some horrific things happening if your child might be facing that uh, you know, what are you going to do? are you going to send them off on a journey or, or alternatively go on the journey with them if you're able to that might result in them having a life where they're protected, um, or are you going to let them stay there and just take the risk? People don't choose it. Well, they okay, there is choice, but what is that choice? You know, so people only do this when they're absolutely desperate. Now, however, it happens, those kids have got nobody. And and uh, uh, so at Question Time last night, I heard somebody saying they're in France, they're safe. Well, I've been. To the camps in France, and the camps are now gone, and they're, you know. But I have been to France and seen how they treat these children, and I'm sorry. At one stage, they were being made to sleep in container um, boxes with adults that they didn't know, and nobody was supervising it. That's not keeping them safe. But apart from anything else, we've got a responsibility. Same as France has a responsibility. Same as the rest of the world has a responsibility. And we should be living up to that. And I'm just truly really disgusted. I'm Sorry, that was a big five-minute speech you got there. But no, it's, it's, it's a
0: serious topic. And um, yeah. do you think then, obviously you've done some work on this, um, talking about refugees and shared refugees as well in the past, um, do you think there's going to be any response to this decision? Is there anything that can be done, like maybe raise a motion or something? Do you see anything happening in Parliament on this?
1: Yeah, there will be. I mean, yesterday there was an urgent question. So the SNP um, put in an urgent question and uh, Labour put in an urgent question. It was the same thing. I think Labour's got taken. So uh, Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, had to make a statement and had to answer questions on it. I think legally they can do it if they want to, but the pressure that was brought to bear on them um, throughout uh, the last year to get to the stage where they agreed to the Dubbs Amendment. So Dubs is Alf Dubbs uh, from the House of Lords. He used to be head of the Refugee Council and then became a politician. Now he's in the House of Lords and he really pushed on this. And uh, they gave in on very little else, but they gave in on this after months and months of concerted effort between the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It's one of the few times I thought the House of Lords was actually quite a useful place. Um... And and so now, so very soon after it, they've gone back on it. I just don't see... We're not going to stop fighting for it, but it it just gives you a really clear idea of the lack of intent on their part.
0: And I think it also shows the 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 true uh, value of refugees from the Conservative government, because these are child refugees. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that they're a security threat is pretty thin. Um, yeah. You know, but it shows that even if you've got something as as innocent as a child trying to make it from Syria, that they have still got an issue with that. So, you know, what hope does that give for for adult refugees who I are know. you know equally suffered?
1: And and I mean, I, I sat on the I think I've spoken about this before on this podcast. I sat on the immigration bill committee, and uh, I heard Tories talking about refugee children in a way that surprised me. Even though I'm quite sceptical. Um, about uh, Tories for, well, sceptical, I don't know if you could call it being sceptical, I know I know what their politics are. Um, I sat there and uh, I was making the point that uh, something they were trying to do was going to impact really negatively on the children of asylum seekers in this country. And, and what they were doing was uh, they were taking away their right to be um, housed and uh, given a minimal income to get by on if they were, they called them failed but what they mean is if they hadn't yet proven that they were asylum seekers, it's a very difficult thing to prove because when your country's in disarray and maybe it's your government that's forced you out, they're hardly going to give you a letter saying that I confirm this person was yeah. forced out of the country. Yeah, so refugee
0: so, you're defined by your kind of lack of uh, status you've got no passport, you've got yeah, nothing.
1: Yeah, and, and so, you know, but you have to be able to prove that you, anyway Whilst trying to prove it, if you are turned down, they call you a failed asylum seeker. So basically the Immigration Bill was saying that uh, failed asylum seekers, uh, not yet successful asylum seekers with children, were always allowed to stay in the system because they had children, so they were taking that away from them. And, uh, you know, we, myself and others, very strongly made the point you know, about the children, you always have to look after the children. And their attitude was, and some of them did say it, well, that's their parents' responsibility. If the parents are not going to look after the children, it's not up to us to pick up the slack. But yes, it is. Because if parents who were born and brought up in this country don't look after their children, we look after their children. You know, whose responsibility is it? So that that just gives you an idea of the attitude, and that's their attitude to people in this country. So their attitude to people miles away is look, this is not our this is not our problem. Yeah, there's
0: a projection of that everyone's got this really stable, um, you know, middle class existence, and that somehow you're just a bad parent for letting your child go off the rails. Yeah. I mean, the Tories wouldn't have let Superman of the planet. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> uh,
1: anyway, it's you but, have a strange way of looking at the world. Well, you know, I, Jerry. I thought, you've been you've been
0: very serious. So I thought I'd spice it up a bit, a bit of, <laughs> of Callie chat. Um, but yeah there's a, so there's a lot of parallels obviously at the minute with America with how we're kind of retreating from the world a wee bit as Britain um, and the, nothing's been a better example of that than the Brexit chat it's yeah. been sort of going on constantly over the past few days and it's just been it's been pretty wild um, can you give me anyone listening the, the summary what's been happening over the past few days in Westminster
1: well you know me and my summaries they're not really they don't really I'm just going to go for a cup of tea Anne you, you right. keep talking right? you go for <laughs> carry on I'll let you know when I'm finished <laughs> come back tomorrow uh, well, it's been a, a really interesting couple of weeks. Um, you know, we've, we've had real difficulties the SNP group because we feel that, as uh, in 2015, 56 of the 59 MPs that were elected were SNP MPs, then we can say that, to an extent, we do speak for Scotland. Obviously, we don't reflect everyone's views. That's fine. But if we're not speaking for Scotland, who is? I mean, down in Westminster, obviously. Um, so, uh, we've had real difficulty because we've been unable to have our voices heard at times. So, um, and this is a huge issue, a huge issue for us because, you know, we put forward lots and lots of amendments. They don't all get heard, of course they don't, but uh, there were hundreds of amendments um, and there were no concessions given whatsoever. No concessions at all. So, basically, we've just, well, we haven't because we voted against it, but the Labour Party uh, has given uh, the Tories a blank cheque and just said, go off and negotiate, and whatever you think, that's fine. You Just you do what you think is best, Prime Minister. That's basically it. Um, apart from the, the noble uh, rebels in the Labour Party, but there weren't that many of them. So basically, we've had difficulty because um, how it happens is when you're speaking in a debate, they tend to let everybody that wants to speak, speak. They have a list Notified in advance uh, of everyone, your whip's office will say to them, "Here are our speakers for today," and it's up to the speaker or the deputy speaker to uh, allocate time accordingly. So you'll see if you're watching the debates that throughout the day they'll say, "Okay, um, we're now cutting backbench speeches." Well, they'll maybe they start off by saying, "Listen, there are this number of speakers, there are these number of hours. Could you try to keep your speeches to uh, less than ten minutes?" And then, if people are not doing that, they'll then impose uh, a time limit. And you can see that time limit sometimes goes from eight minutes to seven minutes to six minutes. And you see people scoring out. I hate when that happens because uh, I'm not good at cutting things down, as you can tell. Would you like, <laughs> would you like to say something here, Jerry, just so it's not a monologue from me? <laughs> no. Okay. Fine. That's fine. I'll carry on. No, that's it's good insight. Go for it. So, um, so... Uh, so that's what normally happens and now I think it was uh, the the week before this week that we're in. So the first week we were discussing Brexit, um, I think we had, I'm getting my days mixed up anyway, there was the first day that there was an issue, um, eight of our speakers, seven of our speakers didn't get to speak. Now you've got to sit in the chamber the entire day so they were in for a good seven or eight hours and instead of cutting the time down accordingly, they were they were going. They've got to go opposition side, government side, opposition side. Now we sit in the opposition side, as does Labour, as does the SDLP, the Greens, and everybody else. Right? That isn't so Tory. There's, so there's
0: a built-in bias towards the government benches in that sense. Aye, yeah. aye.
1: Um, and so they they go from one side to the other. Um, so that's what they were doing. But every time they came over to the other side, it was always Labour, and and we're used to that. Uh, starting off like that but the day went on and we'd had I think in I think after 99 speakers we'd had one um, so I think at the end of the day uh, instead of saying to everybody right you've got four minutes now they just allowed people to speak for as long as they liked and the result was one Lib Dem and seven SNP MPs didn't get to speak and that just doesn't happen so we were not happy and just to be
0: clear, like that—that would mm-hmm. have been that would have been, un, that would have been um, unheard of, even when Lib Dems were the third largest party in Westminster. Like that wouldn't have been seen as acceptable. No. But because it's the SNP, it seems like it's it's yeah. okay to kind of put you well, in a box but, in that sense. Yeah,
1: there's loads of things down there that because it's us, it doesn't matter, and we're just kicking up a fuss. Um, and yeah, we did kick up a bit of a fuss, but y- you kind of just have to do. The speaker gets to decide, and that's that. So the next thing that happened, and I think I've got this right, I think this was Monday of this week. Um, and we had, um, let me think about this, there was two sections to the debate, so the first section, so this is committee stage this week, right? and committee stage often takes place in committee rooms, but this debate took place in the whole chamber, so everybody's involved in the committee stage. So when you're watching it, you see that the speaker is not sitting in the big chair, they're sitting down with the clerks because you're in committee. Um, If you're moving, so you move groups of amendments, so, um, if you're moving amendments that you've put forward, i.e. Uh, you're the first speaker in that debate. You can take as long as you like, right? Um, so that's what they did. They took ages. And um, I think Monday night I went home about ten o'clock at night. Um, we were sitting till midnight, but not voting. So I could, go, and I wasn't speaking, so I could go home. I went home ten o'clock at night. I thought I'm just going to go home, and watch Coronation Street. And I got home, tried to watch Coronation Street, couldn't concentrate, put the TV on, watched Parliament Channel, (laughs) because I'm that sad. Um, And I wanted to see some of ours who'd been waiting all day to speak, and I assumed that some of them would have done, but they hadn't. And what happened was about quarter past eleven at night, they called an SNP speaker, followed by an SNP speaker, followed by an SNP speaker. Instead of, you know, so they just, and and I don't really understand why they did that, and we weren't very happy about it. Understandably,
0: it's not a debate. Then, at that point, is it? It's no. not necessary because wh- how are you feeding or responding responding to yeah. other people's comments? It's just,
1: yeah. it was just, and and it was, it was clearly deliberate because they decide in advance what order the speakers are going in. So that was fine. It wasn't fine, but anyway. Then um, I think the next day, uh, what happened was we had two lots of debates, and we'd had one speaker, and um, it was getting to the end of the day. And they'd all been sitting there waiting to speak and Joanna Cherry was called. So Joanna got up. Now Joanna's on the Brexit committee so you would think she'd have something important to add. And after she'd spoken for two minutes, bearing in mind a lot of the speakers were speaking for 20 minutes, after she'd spoken for two minutes, the deputy um, speaker said, uh, I think um, the Honourable ladies should be winding up now. Um, And Joanna just decided that she wasn't winding up Oh, she was kind of winding them up by doing this, yeah. by not winding up, and she just carried on speaking, um, because it, it's just not right, and it's not about it's not about the SNP saying the SNP is not getting in, although that's part of it. It's not about us individually saying me, 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 I want to speak. It's about saying we represent Scotland, a country that has a very different view on this, and and the people of Scotland have got the right to have their views expressed. So she got to three minutes and he stood up and he said, this is the deputy speaker, he said, um, right, uh, the the Honourable Lady's finished and he called the other speaker. And so Alex Salmond raised a point of order. And uh, Lindsay Hoyle, he's he's actually very pleasant, um, but he made a bit of a a faux pas in what he said in in response to the the point of order. So he said, I think... um, You know, the SNP should agree that I've been very kind in allowing one of them to speak. Of course, that did not go down well with us. Um, And if you watched it, I mean, I can't guarantee that nobody swore we were not happy. Very kind in allowing you to speak. I'll, I'll explain, to be fair to him, what he meant by that. Our chief whip had gone over to him and said, Look, we've not any, we've only had one SNP speaker all day. Could you not just Yeah, all day at this point. This uh-huh. is late at night. Aye, mm. aye, And I don't I don't think he'd been in the chair all day though, right? And he's going by what the speaker has laid out for, you know, who's to speak. And he said, Could you please just let one of us let Joanna in or somebody and he said right I will but it's just for a couple of minutes so he didn't to be fair to him he didn't actually mean it's very kind of me to allow the SNP in. although we didn't all know that at the time but that's what he was saying it's very kind of me to allow you know she's had her say and that's that and so there was about 12 of us were just so angry that we walked out um but it wasn't a it wasn't a big staged walkout because two minutes later the division bell went and we all walked back in again to mm. vote. <laughs> um, so, right, do you want to know part three to this story? Yes, go for it. So uh, the next day, uh, Patrick Grady, uh, my constituent, um, and the MP for Glasgow North, the neighbouring constituency, Patrick was moving his amendments, uh, on beh- oh, moving the SNP's amendments And as I said to you earlier, when you're moving amendments, you can speak for as long as you like. So, Patrick, um, there was only something like an hour for speakers. And Patrick, um, with the aid of interventions from many of ours, see, we knew our speakers weren't going to get in. But they had things that they wanted to say on behalf of constituents. So they intervened on Patrick while he was speaking. And the result was that many of them, I don't know how many, many of them got making the points that they wanted to make in their speeches. But more quickly than mm-hmm. they would have done, got to make some points. And Patrick spoke for 58 minutes. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 they weren't happy. The Tories weren't happy. The Labour Party weren't happy. I'll tell you something about the Labour Party. When Lindsay Hoyle was saying, I've been very kind, allowing the SNP to speak, loads of them were going, wah, wah, wah. Angela Eagle, I'm gonna sing- single her out for um for you know being the most enthusiastic. And it did kind of feel when they were looking over at us and pulling their faces and making their weird noises, it did feel like they were saying back in your box a mm-hmm. lot, and it really, really annoyed me. So anyway. Um so the Labour Party, one of the Labour, uh, Mary Kay, I think it is, stood up and uh, raised a point of order. She said, there are many speakers wishing to speak in this debate. And we were thinking, oh, really? Really? Well, now you know how it feels. Um, but the Tories were not happy and they were saying, the member is filibustering. Yes, you do it all the time. Anyway, I would encourage anybody to go and watch Patrick's speech because I love the way he deals with them when they're attacking him for doing what they do all the time on really important issues. And I guess, you know, Patrick had a lot to say um, and knew that he was going to be the only speaker. Our people intervening had a lot to say. But I guess, inadvertently, (laughs) he was making a point. And the next day he underlined that point because he was down having a, a... He had a Prime Minister's question... And his question was, did the Prime Minister not think it was time that we put regulations in place to stop filibustering and stop people speaking for 58 minutes at a time? Honestly, I would encourage people to go read or watch his speech and then read or watch uh, the the PMQ that he had, because it was really, really funny. They were not happy at all. They were absolutely furious. So, part four, my final part of my highlights of... This, I mean, it was obviously a really horrible week in some respects. It's horrible what's happened. You know, Theresa May can now just go and do what she wants to do and drag, well, attempt to drag Scotland out of the European Union against its will. We'll see about that. But it was a pretty depressing week in that respect. Um, But the other two highlights were at the end of the day... Um, when we were we were voting for two and a half hours, we had nine different votes, and when it came to the final vote, Alex Salmond raised a point of order and said, "You know, the fact that you you normally the the procedure is it goes from the debate stage to the committee stage, then third reading, and the third reading is another debate about it. But you don't have a third reading if you don't have any amendments." accepted and the government refused to accept any amendments and he made the point that for the first time since 1914 we have a bill going through that is not going to third reading stage because they refuse to take to give any concessions whatsoever and how can you not have a third reading stage on something so important so his point of order was excellent and then we were sitting um, you know just waiting for the result of the final uh, vote which we knew we knew what it was and Chris Stevens started whistling Ode to Joy, uh, the mm-hmm. the European anthem. And a couple of people joined in. And before you knew it, all of the SNP and Caroline Lucas, she was sitting next to me, she was humming along. And we were all uh, either whistling or humming. And Lindsay Hoyle, the Deputy Speaker, uh, you should read what he said. It was quite funny, though. He was saying, Look, look. I like singing as next as as good as anyone, as much as anyone, he said. But, you know, we don't want the other side to start singing their songs. I don't think they've got as good voices. You know, can we please, it's been a long week, can we please just not sing? Please don't sing. <laughs> it yeah. was quite funny. I
0: saw that. There was, there was a, a still image of him when he got these big, because he's got a good rage face, Lindsay Hoyle, you know, a good rage <laughs> yeah. face. And it was very, pretty much after that he did seem very reasonable. He was just like, please don't. Please <laughs> don't let's not turn this into a sing song. I
1: know, I know. So I, I think, you know, we did our best to make our voice Voices heard. It, it's really sad what's happened. We knew it was going to happen. It didn't, you know. It would have been better if the Labour Party had had a bit of a backbone over this. I mean, this is this was not a vote to say you can't leave Europe. This was a vote to. I mean, it was partly about you know what are you going to negotiate for? What is it that you're looking for here?
0: But also UK wide, um, it wasn't it wasn't a huge massive victory for for uh, people wanted to leave Europe. So. The SNP, you can say that they represent Scotland, which they are in Parliament, yeah. but they're also representing views of people who don't necessarily want to leave the EU and accepting as we are of that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make the best of it before, before they go. So it yeah. wasn't just Scotland's voice that was being shut down, it was all yeah. those people up and down Britain who, exactly. who didn't want to leave either.
1: Which is why um, some Labour MPs did rebel, particularly ones that represent constituencies where they voted to remain.
0: Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of excitement in Parliament about Brexit. It's been, it's, mm-hmm. it's been all over the news and stuff, but I suppose another issue that's kind of important in the constituency is job centre closures. Oh, we spoke a bit about this yeah. before um, before we broke up for Christmas. There's been a lot of, uh, lot of chat about what the DWP are planning to do in Glasgow, especially. Um, what happened over the Christmas break and kind of what's the latest on that?
1: Um, what happened? Well, there was the consultation which closed on... We persuaded them to extend it to the 31st of January, I think it was. So the consultation closed then... Um, so uh, what has happened? Nothing, they've just decided to close more which we knew, we knew that's what they were up to Yeah, they've added
0: in backroom offices and stuff things that aren't obviously job centres but as as part of that network
1: Yeah, but they've also added in a lot of job centres across the country Um, so we've had more debates about it, we've uh, submitted, you can submit a parliamentary petition and I think five of the Glasgow MPs submitted theirs the other night after the final Brexit vote. Um, I'm going to submit mine after. But yeah, uh, no, we're keeping up the campaign. It's, you know, I mean, uh, Alison Thewlis, for instance, had, you know, a huge big pile of petitions signed. People are really worried about it. I know that uh, uh, I certainly went along with some Glasgow MPs and MSPs to the Scottish Parliament, uh, Bob Doris had a members' debate on job centre closures, and we met with Jamie Hepburn, the Scottish government minister. Afterwards, he's you know um, been in communication with the British government over this, uh, and and I think uh, since we last spoke, I maybe have spoken in a debate in Westminster Hall where I was really making the point that if they're saying that they've got all this space that's not being utilised, and that's why they need to close it down utilize the space and I came up with a whole load of ideas for them you know I feel really strongly that we need to not be helping people into work in a sort of teacher pupil way we need to be helping people in a more supportive environment a more respectful environment a less testing environment you know making sure you jump through hoops I when I was unemployed in the 90s um the, they had, and I know they still have a couple of these, but they had unemployed workers' centres and uh, people were very supportive, mutually supportive of each other. I went to a thing, it was a job club type thing, and but it was called the executive job club. And I went to the job club and I found it really difficult. I found it really patronising and, you know, pointy finger. I went to an executive job club because I had a degree, a degree, and they treated you with real respect and... They'd been unemployed and they taught you how to sell yourself and they built your confidence. Now, everybody should have access to that. So that is one of the things that I suggested in the debate, that we change how we approach people who are unemployed and we change how we support them and we create an environment kind of like that and that the space can be used for that. But also, if you're unemployed, last time I was unemployed, it was a few years ago, and I had no money and uh, my printer broke and I wanted to send off a whole load of CVs and when I went into the job centre I said could I print off my CVs in here and they said well we've no facility for you to do that why, why have they no facility so I said why don't you provide office equipment and allow people to come in if you genuinely want to help people into work give them the tools because you've no idea when you're unemployed and you're living on uh, on, on job seekers allowance honestly to go and use a, a a photocopier at 10 pence a copy, I'm sorry but it is far too expensive, people don't have the flexibility that you need and it costs money to to get a job so you know, that's what I was suggesting instead of closing down and saying oh we're not using that space, just bloody well use it.
0: Yeah we need to go the other way and because and, and, like you're saying the, these centres are now you know three quid and a bus away. And that Mm. might not sound like much, but that three quid, if you don't have any money, or that three quid is now suddenly like a a three-hour round trip to get there instead of a 45-minute trip. And,
1: Jerry, more than that, because some of them you cannot get a bus. Like, people here... um, Now, I'm just trying to think, because I'm not aware of a bus that goes from here to Shettleston. But I know you can go to Parkhead and then you can go to Shettleston. Some people are going to have to get two buses, right, just because they're not direct bus routes. And that means they're going to have to get an all-day bus ticket, which is, what, four fifty. That's 50 yeah. that's, that's a real struggle for somebody on benefit.
0: So, yeah, there's not only the the moving things far away, it's then, like you're saying, the, the lack of then services that are being delivered. It just feels like the opposite The opposite of what should be done. You know, when you look at where the job centres in Glasgow are being shut, it's places where there's the highest deprivation, basically. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's seen as if Glasgow's got too many, quote-unquote, where you think, well, look at some of the statistics of the city. Like, yeah. it needs more job centres than maybe other places. And and
1: it, there's a lot of job centres that are earmarked for closure that have got round about them, Citizens Advice and various other organisations that have placed themselves there... Because the job centre's there and because the people that are most likely to need their help are going to be really close by. So I know they've done that in Maryhill, Hill, I know they've done it in Bridgeton, you know, so there's no thought has gone into this. No thought whatsoever. They've just decided to cut it. Plus, you know, the UK as a whole is cutting twenty percent of its job centre space. We're getting a fifty percent cut in Glasgow? I don't think so.
0: And moving on, there's also um I know you're you're quite passionate about um Gambia, D- DRC, things like you're quite interested in it, um, and there was some developments in Gambia recently where President Jami was basically his hook was slung. I don't know if that's the technical term. <laughs> um, so Joy, tell us a wee bit about that and what, what that means to the country and, and why you're excited about it.
1: I mean, it's just the most amazing thing to have happened to them. He has been in power for twenty four, twenty two years. Sorry, he um, he was a dictator. He uh, people were jailed or disappeared if they spoke out against the government. Lots and lots of human rights abuses. Lots of countries are the same. Uh, that was just one of them. But um, I know uh, Gambians, when I was in the, the Scottish Parliament um, many years ago, um, the the Gambian human rights campaign um, came to see me. So I've kept in touch with them since then. And recently I've put down e- uh, early day motions about the Gambia and I've met up with Gambian political activists in London and here in Glasgow. Um, so I was really interested in what was happening because basically what happened was there was a coalition of seven political parties in Gambia uh, got together and agreed to select one person as their presidential candidate because they they don't they don't beat Jammy when they're all competing. So these seven political parties selected um uh, Adama Barrow, who was a member of the UDP, um, uh, the UDP being one of the seven parties, um, and they all worked to get him elected, and he got elected, and then President Jamey said that he accepted that he had lost the election and he would stand down, then he changed his mind and said no, and he declared a state of emergency. And so the reason that people were coming to see me in London and here in Glasgow is because they were so worried that civil war was going to break out, that he was going to set soldiers in the army on civilians. And they were really worried about the bloodshed that they anticipated. Um, and they were looking for the British government to make representation and other... Because cause lots of countries had made their feelings clear to President Jamy that he should go, and the British government hadn't. So I did ask questions in in Parliament. Um, it was quite funny, actually. I asked a question. Um, I can't remember how I put it. I don't think I put it quite the way you have just put it, but I said to uh, one of the Foreign Office Ministers, Tobias Elwood, I said, did he not think... Uh, could he tell... Um, President Jammie to take a hike or something. Mm -hmm. And his response was, not in so many words, but yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's like, I maybe wouldn't word it the way you've worded it. Anyway, um, in the end, uh, it all worked out. And it worked out because African political leaders came together and they just, they negotiated with him. They persuaded him. They didn't need anybody coming in from the West. They didn't need outside interference or support however you look at it and without a single gunshot being fired he left now there's an issue to look at later because apparently he left with lots of the country's money but he left and people are in peace now and um and Africans did it themselves mm-hmm. and it's just it's just fantastic and the great thing for me is that I got an email from the first gambian i ever met who came to me in the Scottish Parliament. He lives in Glasgow. He's a journalist. He came here as an asylum seeker because his life was in danger in his own country. And he's emailed me and he said that he is going home because he can. And and that's brilliant. And he's and he said that, that all the draconian uh, anti-journalism laws are being repealed by the new president and that anyone that wants a licence to set up a news agency, a media outlet will get a license. So in actual fact, in actual fact, there's a way that we can help him. I mean, I think I'm just thrilled that he's getting to go home and he's going to set up his own uh, media services, whatever. I don't know if it's a newspaper radio station. I don't think he's decided yet. But we, the people of Glasgow and Scotland, can help. uh, And I think we should by way of celebration of the fact that this country has done it themselves and they're transitioning to a full democracy. And... um, and in actual fact, when I met with some of them afterwards and asked them, how did you do it? And they said, social media. Social media, we were able to tell the truth. People in villages, everybody's got phones, and we were even people that don't have fancy phones, text messages, text messages, and people started to learn the truth, and they started to get confidence that in actual fact, if they voted, their vote would count this time. It's just amazing. So to celebrate all of that... Uh, I'm appealing for people to help the constituent I mentioned who's going back to set up a newspaper or a radio station. If you've got old computers, if you've got old printers, if you've got old laptops, if you've got any recording equipment that you can donate to him to take back home and set up some kind of media outlet, then please just get in touch with me. Um, You'll get the details at the end of how to get in touch, but get in touch and we'll arrange for those uh, things to be donated. And um, yeah, so it's all good. That's
0: brilliant. Mm. And here's a really cat candid transition. So we're talking about the deposition of one uh, <laughs> rotten ruling body. And let's now move on to the council elections. Glasgow <laughs> City Council. That's really distasteful the people of Gambia. Apologies. Um, but yeah, SNP branches over the past week or so have been kind of picking their candidates and stuff, which is yeah. quite exciting in advance of the, the elections yeah. in May. So how, how do you feel about that?
1: Oh, I'm excited. I mean, we've already been out campaigning for the council elections because you don't need a candidate to do that. Um, But yeah, so I couldn't make the branch meeting because I was busy voting down in Westminster on Wednesday night. But I'm really pleased with who we've got. Um, I would have liked us to have had more women We did try to persuade a number of women, but for various reasons they couldn't. But I have to say, you know, we're really fortunate in the council. You think that as well, don't you? You were at the meeting. Yeah,
0: there's some really, really great candidates that are coming in, so it's quite exciting.
1: I'm excited. And I I mean, I'm mostly, I'm excited about some of the individuals that are going to hopefully get elected. I am mostly excited, however, um, at the prospect of us winning Glasgow City Council. Um, I just think it's the one... Most transformative thing we can do. The I think the manifesto. When people see the manifesto, they will realise that you know there is a real opportunity here to make the changes that probably you've all been talking about. You know all the things that really irritate you about the council. I'm not saying if we take on the council, people won't feel irritated with us and they won't disagree with some of the decisions we make. And you know it's not the road to. It's not uh, some kind of manana. But the approach is going to be very different. The approach is going to be about empowering individuals and communities rather than politicians doing everything for themselves. So I won't say any more than that because I will be saying it in forthcoming podcasts and we have to launch the manifesto yet. But I think we have a real opportunity here and, yeah, that's why I've been out campaigning already. I'm going to be doing lots more uh, during recess and... Um, yeah, it's really good to have great candidates to go with that.
0: I know we might be preaching the converted. People listening to the podcast are probably interested in that, but I think it's it's worth noting that the council elections are traditionally the the more uh, the less exciting election that people don't get as excited <laughs> yeah. about. But if you actually look at the list of things that affect your life, as imp- you're an MP, as important as Member of Parliament, Member of Scottish Parliament, as the council has a huge impact on everyone's day-to-day life. And I think people in Glasgow... That, that complain about the parts of Glasgow they don't like, don't realise that actually that's changeable.
1: Yeah.
0: And the council frequently the vehicle to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always say that the most important thing we can do is not about winning all the MPs in the city or all the MSPs in the city. It's about winning the council. That is where the difference is going to be made. And I would say, you're right, most people who listen to this are already supportive of the SNP in some way, Um but I would, um, so therefore, I'm going to take this opportunity to appeal to them to come out and campaign because I know a lot of people feel confident that we're going to take the council. I wouldn't say I feel unconfident, but I don't feel confident yet. um my fear is that we'll end up with five or six people out campaigning because everybody thinks we've done it and then we won't win. And uh, I couldn't bear that because this is our real chance you imagine what we can do okay we're not yet independent but if we we are in charge of glasgow city council and we've got all the mps in the city and we've got nearly all the msps and we're in government and in the scottish parliament you know it's a real opportunity but the real grassroots changes will only be made if we win the council so please come out and help
0: also, I kind of jump back to Westminster, you spoke in a debate and UK citizens not being able to bring their spouses over to Britain, yeah. and you, you said some stuff that was quite, it was really quite sad to mm. think, to, to hear that and, and think about it. Um, but I think you've had a meeting with the immigration minister, so do you want to tell us kind of what happened, what the outcome of that was?
1: Yeah, that, that's why it's really good to have these debates. It was Stuart MacDonald, our immigration spokesperson, who applied for the Westminster Hall debate. You go into a ballot, he won the ballot, and he got the debate, but the minister has to come and, and respond to you. And, uh, so I spoke in it. I summed up for the SNP, and I talked about a number of my constituents. I mean, a lot of people are very surprised to hear that if you meet and fall in love with somebody who isn't entitled to live in automatically entitled to live in Britain, um, they it's a real nightmare trying to get them into the country. You would think you could just bring your husband or your wife over, but no. So one of the main issues is that you have to you have to be earning a minimum of eighteen thousand six hundred a year. Um, in order to qualify for the spouse visa. Then you need to pay £1,300 to apply. They might say yes, they might say no, they might say is it a sham marriage. They do. They they do all sorts of things. Anyway, I highlighted a number of cases of uh, local people. So one was Christine, um, and her issue was she was £50 a month short, so therefore she couldn't get her husband. Her, she met her husband in Nigeria. they have been married a few years, and he isn't allowed to come over here. So she's, you know, she earns less than 18600 She's not exactly loaded, so she's not exactly got the money to keep going over and seeing him. But she was having to find the money to keep the marriage alive, to go and visit her husband, and obviously she wants to do that. Anyway, she was working towards earning more. She just needed to earn another £50 a month, and she'd be able to apply and start jumping through the other hoops. And unfortunately, her dad... Uh, is the main carer for her mum, who's very frail and elderly. Her dad got leukemia and was unable to look after the mum. So she now is the main carer for the two of them. And I was saying in this debate that because she's the main carer, she cannot earn the money that she was earning. Um, In fact, that day she had told uh, Joe in the office that she hadn't earned anything in the previous month and the husband in Nigeria was having to send over money to keep them. Um so the fact that she was saving the state thousands by looking after her parents, selflessly caring for them, I, I, you know, understandably, um, meant that at a time when she really needs her husband, and as I was saying, she could do with a hug, you know, from her husband, at a time when she really needs him, A, she can't go and visit him, and B, he can't come here. And the minister, the immigration minister, said that he would meet me um, I mean I always ask in these debates will the minister meet me to discuss they never do therefore <laughs> well they don't never actually almost never do therefore I didn't ask but he offered so we had the meeting this week and he had looked into it and he was able to tell me that if you are in receipt of carers allowance which if she's not then she soon will be um, but we have advised her to apply for it anyway if you're in receipt of carers allowance your minimum income requirements are lower. You just need to meet the minimum income requirements that say that you're on income support levels, which is about 5,000 a year. Um, now, that's not a guarantee that she's going to get her husband in.
0: It's but just it, a first step.
1: Yeah, but it's still a huge step forward. So I was, I was expecting to meet him and I have to ask him to make an exception in her case, but he didn't have to make an exception because she doesn't need to meet that minimum income requirement, which was great. It doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, I mean, I've got, I've got, had a woman who I was able to say last week her husband was able to join her and their two children, but it's been five years, five years. And the, and the Home Office would say things like, we're not entirely sure that this is a genuine marriage. I mean, you don't go and visit him very often, do you? And she's like, no, that, I'll tell you why I don't go and visit him very often, because I have our two children to look after. You're making me work until I earn 18600 a year. I can't afford to go and visit him. But yes, it's a real marriage, but it took five years for those kids. Well, the kids are two and four. Um, and they've only ever known their dad as a face on a laptop. And now he's in Glasgow and they finally gave in. But, so what I'm saying is it's great, got a great result for, for um, Christine, um, but there's wider issues at stake and I just think it's really unfair. Um, if you are a British citizen and you marry somebody else, you should be entitled to bring them to live with you um, and you're not. But anyway, a bit of a result for Christine.
0: Anyway, and that's us at the end of another episode of Parliamental. Oh, we got there. We got there. <laughs> After a few months, we finally got back to the chair under it. Um, so anyway, if you at home would like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at ParliamentalPod, on Facebook, search for Parliamental, and via email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Again, subscribe to the iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. And then I'll be back in a fortnight with another episode.
1: Yes, we will. And don't forget, if you've got laptops or computers, use those contact details yeah. that Jerry mentioned. And I'll
0: pass them on to And anyway. So thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.
1: Bye.